Hello and welcome to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer, a series featuring conversations with experts to share recent market developments, key insights and strategic inputs from around the globe. In each episode, we cut through the noise to bring practical advice and macro research on today's shifting economic and market landscape. Please listen to the important legal information at the end of this podcast and refer to www.juliusbear.com forward slash legal forward slash podcasts for further important legal information prior to listening to this podcast. Hello, I'm Bhaskar Lakshmi Narayan, Chief Investment Officer and Head of Investment Management in Asia for Julius Bear. Today, I'm joined by our Head of Research, Asia, Mark Matthews. Hello, Mark. Hello, Bhaskar. Mark and I will take the next few minutes to review the year that 2020 was, and also to tell you what we think of 2021 and what it has in store for world economy and markets. To start with, let me talk about the asset allocation. We started the year of 2020 with about 51% in stocks, 34% in bonds, 10% in cash, and 5% in alternates. As we end 2020, things don't look very different. We still have 51% in stocks, Mark, and we have 39% in bonds now, a little more than what we started with. We have 6% in cash, so all of that basically extra in bonds has come from the cash allocation, and we have 4% in alternates. So we've increased our risk. We've increased marginally. Well, we have increased a little bit more on the bond side, but what's really changed is what's inside that construct. Two things that I would like to point out on that change, Mark. Uh, One is we now have renminbi bonds for the first time ever in our asset allocation. This is very significant, and we'll talk about that as we talk more and more through this call, but we do have renminbi bonds in 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 the asset mix. We also have small caps. And this also is pretty, well, we've had small caps before, but we've not had it for multiple years now. So I think it's a significant change as far as our tactical positioning is concerned. Uh, those are the two things that I would sort of say with our asset allocation, but we're still going into 2021 with fairly a risk-biased asset allocation, right? So, Mark, you know, we, could you sort of take us through what happened in 2020? A lot happened, but it'll be good to have a good recap. I certainly can, Baskar. And if we go back, and when I go back and I look at my notes from a year ago, I was just looking at them yesterday, as a matter of fact, I can see that most of the things we were talking about seem like the very distant past, the trade war. Remember, we were talking about the trade war all the time. And ironically, how the trade war had probably extended the world economic cycle because central banks around the world had been so busy cutting interest rates uh, throughout most of 2019 to, to buffer the negative effects of the trade war that we were actually looking for the economic data to start picking up and start accelerating in 2020. And nobody was talking about a highly infectious and often deadly disease sweeping the world. Uh, It was just at the end of December when the Municipal Health Commission in Wuhan first reported on what they thought was a cluster of pneumonia cases. And then obviously in the following weeks in January, it became clear it was a highly contagious coronavirus 
But, seems, um, seems like an eon ago. It really does. But I'll tell you what's amazing when I, when I do look back on my notes uh, is how few people were talking about it getting outside of China. The view was very much, as you might recall back then, it was a China-specific problem. And, and actually, only one person told me, I remember, he thought it was going to go around the world. And I was so amazed. I was so, so shocked to hear him say that that we were going to have a global pandemic. It just didn't sink in. I couldn't conceptualize that. But, of course, we did. <laughs> and uh, I, I remember I us uh, talking about how this was going to be similar to SARS. Right, just that's Asian, right. right. Everybody was comparing it to 2003. But anyway, what I want to say is that it's revealed a lot of things. And one of the things that it has revealed uh, is a certain weakness in the Western world because its societies clearly weren't prepared for this, even today. There's a lot of people there who won't wear masks and that kind of thing. But as much as it has been an unmitigated disaster, a great human tragedy, I, I don't want to downplay that at all. It's also brought about some things that really wouldn't have happened or they wouldn't have happened so quickly. They would have happened differently. And I just want to highlight two. And one is the massive acceleration of digitalization, Bhaskar, from online education to online business and online entertainment. Yeah. Um, and, and clearly, when the vaccines come out, uh, some of that's going to go away, but, but certainly not all of it. And the other thing is the vaccines themselves. And, and uh, Bhaskar, you might have heard the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. Uh, they use a technology called messenger RNA. And without COVID, basically, we wouldn't have figured out how to make that work, or at least we wouldn't have figured it out nearly as soon. But it has massive potential. Because if it can destroy this virus, scientists think it can destroy many other incurable diseases, even cancer. And by the way, this space that I'm talking about, genomics, also referred to as life sciences, is highly investable. And it's one, as you know, we're invested in and we advise others to do the same. Very much so. Yeah. But uh, Bhaskar, I wondered if we could go back to the markets because who would have thought, you know, they would have done what they did, a terrific crash in March fastest recovery on record. In fact, the previous flash crashes, there were 1962, 1974, 1987. It took the market several months to build a base and repair its wounds. And then to get back to its highs of before those flash crashes, that actually took many, many months, sometimes years, even just for example, 1987, October 1987. The uh, S&P didn't get back to the level uh, prior to that flash crash until May of 1989. This one just lasted two weeks. Uh, you know, by August, we were above where we were before the pandemic started. And anyway, here's my question to you, Baskar, because it came back so fast. And practically any valuation metric you use shows us that equities in the United States, now the rest of the world is different, but at least in the United States, they're pretty much as expensive as they've ever been. So, so what I want to ask you is that, you know, what makes us still bullish given this incredible rally and the fact that stocks are expensive? Excellent question, Mark. And I, uh, let me start by first addressing as to why we've seen such a fast recovery. Uh -huh. Well, you know, typically we look for trends and we look at past cycles and we say how long it takes for these things to heal. And as you rightly pointed out, this time it was like, like that, yeah. instant. And Part of that answer, I think, is in this unconventional policy mix that we're seeing, or the policy making has completely turned on its head. And I would like to hear, spend a bit more time talking about what we call as our secure outlook, right? Which way we really don't look at next year, but more of the next decade. Five years from now, five or 10, ten years, years from, now. from now, and what, what we really see. And I want to say the first 
significant change that we've made on this roadmap, right? The last four decades, we look at them as what we call as the neoliberal era, uh-huh. right? What's that? That basically was free market capitalism where, you know, you wanted the state to step aside. You uh-huh. wanted private capitalism to take over. Ronald Reagan, De- Margaret exactly. Thatcher. Absolutely. You wanted deregulation. Essentially, you didn't want anybody sort of being, anybody who was capable of doing things and capable of doing it best should be given the opportunity. Small government. Absolutely. Right? Now, we're going the opposite way to some extent. And part of this has happened ever since we saw the global financial crisis. We realized it was only the state that could step in and save the day. So state is having a bit of a comeback. Right? And we call the next sort of regime a state-sponsored capitalism. State is going to be highly involved in capital allocation. And that essentially means we're going to go away from this sort of austerity that we've always talked about, right? Having one eye on inflation, seeing that people spend less, garments especially spend a lot less. That's generally been the theory before. It's going to change. I think fiscal programs are going to get more and more aggressive. Okay, we've already seen a fairly loose monetary policy regime. I think this is going to continue. All of this are great from a risk asset point of view. So your question on as to why do you think we should continue to be bullish on markets? I don't think a regime change. It's a regime change. Mm. Absolutely, it's a regime change, Mm. right? And I think you're just at the start of that regime change, and that regime change is very, very pro risk assets. So we know that central banks are doing what they're doing with these ultra-low interest rates. And by the way, our own forecast is that rates in the U.S. aren't going to rise until 2024. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> um, but uh, the fiscal side, I mean, I'm interested in that. Can you, can you kind of expand on that a little? What are we, what are we sure. thinking about? Like a new deal from FDR or, uh, or Lyndon Johnson's uh, Great Society? Um, you know, there's this popular term that's used called the modern monetary theory. I've heard about it. Yeah. Right? Which is basically a confluence of both monetary policies as well as fiscal policy. Right? So, that's what you're going to see. In the past, you typically central bank is used one versus the other. It uh-huh. rarely used both together, right? Uh, because both together would mean, boom, there was going to be inflation and that was, that was always going to be a problem. And I think you're going to change, you're going to see that change now. Now they're going for the inflation. They're going, they, they want the inflation if they can get it, right? So I think, I think, therefore, it's a bit of a change from that perspective. I would also like to, you know, add to that what we were talking a little bit earlier in terms of saying, what are the other things that are key takeaways for our listeners as far as structural changes concerned? One, we talked about the regime going to a state-sponsored capitalism, but it also means that growth is sort of becoming, we are in a bipolar growth world. We always knew that the U.S. was a growth engine, but now China joins U.S. in adding to that growth, right, in the world. So which means any portfolio should have both U.S. and China represented in this, in this mix. That's one, one key takeaway that I would, I, would, I would sort of insist here on. And the second part of that is that what we talked about in terms of uh, life sciences, what you call it is genomics. Yeah. It's changing the way that we look at longevity. The third would be the unconventional policymaking. Like I said, we are at the start, we're going to continue. But the other strange thing, Mark, is we've, we've talked so much about this in the past, which is energy which we always thought was a scarce commodity. Yes, I remember peak oil about 15 years ago. Exactly. And now we're talking about energy abundance. Mm -hmm. And I know that you you have, and the research team has a great output on on this front, 
Would you be happy to share that with us? I certainly would. And, uh, you know, it's, it's part of a, I need to kind of give you some background on it, Baskar, because it's, it, it probably wouldn't have happened without our increased awareness of the environmental impact that we are having. We don't really see it if you look at a simple hamburger, a simple bottle of water, you think, well, what's that going to do? But we're starting to realize that millions of hamburgers mean millions of tons of factory farm effluent and antibiotics given to the cows that enter our own bodies and, and the bottles of water I mean plastics all over, even in the deepest parts of the oceans. And both bottles of water and hamburgers use lots and lots of energy, and that causes carbon emissions. And greenhouse gas emissions have gone up 50% in the last 30 years, not just because of hamburgers and plastic bottles, but many other things require energy. Of course, as you know, internal combustion engines and power plants. And anyway, what I want to say is these gases concentrate in the atmosphere, they trap heat, they cause the world's temperature to rise, and, and we know now that natural disasters are becoming more frequent, True. the sea levels are rising, so a few decades, if nothing done to stop that, places like Mumbai, Manila, Ho Chi Minh, Bangkok, I mean, certain a large part of them are going to be underwater. So anyway, Bhaskar, that's the background I wanted to give you, because what it's done is it's, it's really forced governments to become very serious about this, and they are forcing us to change our energy sources and our consumption of coal and oil and gas has got to go down a lot. And renewables, things like solar and wind, are going to go up. has got to go up a lot. And so this is a highly investable space, and the economics are becoming better every year. In fact, solar power is now the cheapest electricity in the history of mankind. And I might add one last thing, Bhaskar, which is that by the end of this decade, people born in the year 1997 or after they're called Zillennials, Generation Z. They keep adding these outfits. Uh, I know. <laughs> What's going to come after? after Z. We won't know. have anything after Z. But what I want to say is they're going to have almost a third of the world's wealth by 2031. And that is as much wealth as millennials have. So those two groups combined of relatively young people are going to have 60% of the world's wealth. And they are going to insist on these changes because they feel very, very deeply about them. But Bhaskar, we've been always, you know, so far talking about good things. I want to ask you what could upset the apple cart next year? Like if you just had to pick one or two things that we should watch out for. I think one obvious thing there, Mark, is what we have been talking about all through this year, uh, this whole COVID situation. Uh -huh. You know, even as we speak today, it's not getting better in, a, in, no. in that sense. You know, we're still seeing an about uprise. About 250,000 new cases in the U.S. per day. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. It's, it's still surging up, not surging yeah. down, right? And so, lockdowns uh, across Europe again. Absolutely. So I think that's definitely one thing to focus on, right? Uh, we did mention even earlier on this year that if this were to... There's a, there's a resurgence in the, in the infection. We do have to take a relook at how we think about risk in markets, right? But, but of course, we've got the vaccines. Exactly. So, so this time around, we do have the resurgence, but we also have, might have a solution through the vaccine. Right? But it certainly have a solution, isn't it, from all I've heard? That's, that's, the, that's the hope. And, and, but we're talking about risk, right? So we know the good news. What's the risk with the vaccines? Well, we do know that we still don't know the efficacy of them in a, in a wide scale. You know, we don't know how it's going to be distributed because everybody talks about how it's not easy to transport these things. The, the messenger RNA ones, uh, uh, Pfizer and Yes, uh, so they, they do have a certain threshold in terms of how they'll, they need to be in, what kind of temperatures they need to be in. So I do think that we need to wait for those. I think that's one area to look at cautiously. Keep an eye on at all points in time. You know, by the way, just to interject, I'm sorry, but uh, I was reading about polio 
uh, last week. And uh, when the initial polio vaccine was introduced in 1955, it did actually have some problems. There were a few hundred, uh, no, maybe it wasn't a few hundred, but there were about 100,000 doses where they had failed to inactivate the polio virus. Oh, wow. And they gave it to, uh, unfortunately, a whole bunch of children in the United States. And, and so there was uh, initially some resistance to the polio vaccine until they kind of identified which laboratories were faulty, etc. So, yeah, it could happen. It, it could. So, uh, touch wood again. I hope uh, it doesn't. And so, one of the things is that we do hope that the efficacy is good. But we don't right? know for we sure. We don't know for sure. So that's one risk area, right? The other one is that things actually start to get better, faster, quicker. The opposite. Right? The opposite. In right? other words, the vaccines are very smooth. Very they get smooth, rolled out fast. Very, exactly. We go about to the way we were before. And then the policymakers think, hey, wait a minute. Now maybe I need to roll back some of this stuff. So we did talk about policies being unorthodox, but it also means that we do not know the path ahead. Right? Because no one's really toyed with these policies in this mix. So maybe you get a policy mistake, as we would like to call it. You mean uh, it would be a mistake for the governments and the central banks to take back the stimulus, even when... If it was a little quicker than anticipated or, you know, because markets today expect these policies do. to sort of sustain and for a while. Love, the markets love the stimulus. Exactly. So that could be the other way to look at it. So, But that we wouldn't know, at least I would say, into the second half of next year, because we would need first and foremost activity to come back. And I think that's a, that's a sort of a tail end risk rather than... Not for today. Well, yeah, for today. So I would say that, that would what it is. But Mark, you, know, you didn't mention about how sort of responsible investing is sort of coming on. And I think one of the points that we want to make and one of the points that we try to make with our secular outlook is today, secular, so, or, or rather the, the responsible investing is becoming profitable. That's one of the key things, yeah. right? So profitability is important, yeah. but as you said, capital today, and especially with the zillennials, okay, are really focused on also being very responsible about where the money goes. Not just going after the highest return. It's not just highest return alone. Of course, they still want returns, but I think the, the responsible part of it is going to become integral. And therefore, Not just to uh, solar and wind, but to everything. Everything. Everything we invest and, in. And, and I think, therefore, investing and portfolio construct should start following the same philosophy. And that's exactly what we are asking our clients to do. You know? Mark, I think, you know, we're sort of running out of time and we're coming to the end Did of the this. Tour de force? Yeah, so, the, so I'm going to do a quick recap of, of what we talked about. You know, we did say that our asset allocation hasn't really changed from the beginning of the year to now. We're entering 2021 with a fairly risk bias in, a, in, our, in our portfolio mix. We do believe that we're still in a growth, uh, growth regime. We do believe that the vaccine would bring positive news. We do believe that economic activity is going to be better in 2021 than in 2020. Sounds good. Right. On that basis alone, we think people should have more equities in their asset allocation than before. Bond markets, as we know, provide very limited exposure today. So we do. So we did mention that we do have renminbi bonds in the portfolio. You did say that at the beginning. So, so there are some emerging market exposure opportunities that we can definitely take advantage of. You mentioned the, U.S. small caps, which is, as you exactly. said, quite new. We said we, we never had small caps. We call it home bias yeah. small caps. So whichever country you are in, whichever region you are in, you could have a bit of small caps there. It makes sense, though. I just have to tell you, I noticed that uh, the growth forecast for small cap earnings next year is, is 75%. And for <laughs> large caps, it's less than 20 Because the delta of, of normalizing activity is much higher for smaller companies than for yeah. larger companies. I also noticed, by the way, I just have to say that their uh, price-to-book ratio 
is uh, half of what the large caps is, which is an historic low. So exactly. So you've got both valuations as well as the growth. That sort of sway the argument for the small caps. And I think that's really why we are, we are saying that you should have that. And so basically, higher risk in the portfolio is something that one should be comfortable with going into 2021. So Mark, I think we're sort of coming to the end of this session. Mm-hmm. And I want to take the opportunity along with Mark here to wish all our listeners a safe and happy holiday season. Happy holidays. And till we speak again, goodbye. You have been listening to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. To learn more about Julius Baer, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at www.juliusbaer.com. We will be back with a brand new episode soon. This is a podcast disclaimer. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast constitute marketing material and are not the result of independent financial or investment research. The podcast content is intended for information purposes only and does not constitute an offer, a recommendation or an invitation by or on behalf of Julius Baer to buy or sell any securities, security-based derivatives or other products or to participate in any particular trading strategy in any jurisdiction. Julius Baer does not accept liability for any loss arising from the use of the podcast content. Please refer to www.juliusbear.com forward slash legal forward slash podcasts for further important legal information.